0: Good evening. Tonight we're looking together in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 9, the word of our God. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites. The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the return exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening service. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush." to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God May brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavely slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins. And to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us? until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. As a young Christian, I learned that prayer is hard, that it is hard work. Also, it was underscored to me that prayer is also something that is very important, indeed vital for our own souls, for our communion with the living God. This passage teaches us about prayer. Prayer. I'm surprised by the number of people who are not exactly sure how to pray or what to pray for or how to go about praying. This is one of the reasons if you ask people why it is that they do not pray or perhaps don't even attend a prayer gathering is they do not know what to do, what to say. Well, this passage provides great instruction for us. A friend of mine is an inspiring I'm sorry, aspiring golfer. And uh, he decided that he would study the swing of Phil Mickelson. Mickelson. This guy's a left, left-handed player, just like Phil is. So uh, he got his DVD and he bought a bunch of DVDs of golf players, particularly Phil, and studied it. He put it, in slow motion even to kind of see the mechanics of how he does his swing and makes contact with the ball. And as he studied it, his game has remarkably improved. Well, this passage has been given to us that we might give ourselves to studying prayer and that our prayer lives might be renewed and strengthened. You know, Ezra knows something about the way to the throne of God's grace. And he can teach us that we might learn more about beseeching our Heavenly Father, about taking heaven, as it were, by a storm through prayer. There are many aspects of prayer, but there is one particular aspect that is the most fundamental, the most foundational aspect of prayer that we learn, especially in this passage. And that is the importance of genuine, heartfelt confession of sin. Oftentimes, our prayers become marvelous list of needs. God wants us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Sometimes our prayers are marked by praying for others, intercessory prayers. And the Lord wants us to pray for our brothers and sisters and our neighbors and those across the globe who don't know the Lord Jesus. But the very foundation of prayer is that of confession. Confession. If you think about it, how true that is in living the Christian life. Think of the first beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who acknowledge their need of God. At the heart of prayer is uh, Jesus told the parable of the rich man and the publican who go to the temple to pray. And the rich man thanks God that he's not like this Publican, this sinner in prayer, and he's strutting around in his pride. But the sinner, the publican, can't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he cries out, God be merciful to me, a sinner or the sinner. And Jesus says, Which man went home justified? Not that we're saved by prayer, but in the sense of which man grew in his grace was demonstrated for the reality of his faith. It was the man who cast himself upon the Lord in his need, the man who came to God in confession. Well, let's get right to the passage. There are two main themes here are divisions of this passage. First, there is the condition of the nation, verses 1 to 4. And then there's the confession of the prophet in verses 5 to 15. We learn something in verses 1 to 4 of the condition of the nation. Uh, The prophet Ezra learned that some of the Jewish people who had returned to the land were now marrying their neighbors who did not know the Lord, who were worshiping idols. They're beginning to repeat the very circumstances that led them to go to be exiled in the first place. And you may wonder why why are they so stirred up with concern? This is something that had been going on that had marked them since they had returned. I believe it was the faithful preaching of the word in Ezra chapter 7. As we read and read of Ezra 7 in verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And the people responded to the truth and grace and power of the Lord's word. And I think now, some of the leaders who have been affected by the word of God, that their own consciences have been aroused, that they look at their circumstances and that of their fellow Jewish people from the perspective of the Lord, and they don't try to excuse the people or to hush up their sin or to downplay it. Or to eliminate it. These leaders knew that they are answerable to the Lord. And that the people, including the priest, the spiritual leaders, and the Levites, Mm -hmm. must repent. That they themselves are engaged in sin that is heinous. That is considered treachery. That is looked at as rebellion against the true and gracious God. Who are these ones whom they are intermarrying? You'll see in verse, the end of verse one, that it's all of the ites, the Canaanites. They're from Tyre and from Sidon. The Hittites are from southern Palestine and Syria. The Perizzites, the Jebusites, were from the hill country of Judea. And the Amorites and the Moabites were descendants of the daughters of Lot. Then there are the Egyptians, nomadic tribes that brought their own religion. One striking thing is that each of these groups and tribes were among those who were in the land when the people of God were were led to take possession of the land. Think of the book of Joshua. These were the ones that the Lord had called them to be devoted to destruction. But their forefathers failed to follow the Lord's command, as strong as it seemed. Our sins often cast very long shadows. They not only affect our lives, they affect the lives of those around us. They can affect even our children and our grandchildren. Well, the scriptures are very clear that God's people are to marry within the faith. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, make this so very clear clear that those who are the Lord are are to be united in the most dear and intimate of relations with those who share a like faith. This is taught for us in the New Testament, that believers are to marry fellow believers. Believing men are to marry believing women that believers are not to marry unbelievers. Uh, what hath light to do with darkness, Paul asks in Corinthians. And then he reminds us that believers are not to be unequally yoked in that yoke of a close, intimate relation of marriage with one who doesn't know the Lord. And there are a lot of principles. And the Lord Makes this teaching a command because he deeply loves us. It isn't that he's trying to be a killjoy. It isn't that he's trying to to intrude or disrupt people's enjoyment in marriage. It's that he knows for us to really enjoy marriage as he has designed it. That is to be with believers who share. A common faith. I don't have time to elaborate on all the reasons why this is the case. But look, as Ezra is presented with these circumstances, what is his response? Verse 3 As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. It's a pretty drastic response. He was cut to to his very heart in grief. The expression of the tearing of his clothes was a symbol of grief in his day. And the pulling of the hair was a less, a much less common reaction or response. It shows the depth the gravity of concern, of distress, of pulling his hair and on his beard. He was deeply concerned that the people of God were returning to and taking up detestable practices as he describes it later in the chapter. And he was moved to tears. When have you been moved over your own sin or the sin of this land I don't mean merely an emotional sense though tears may be an expression of your spiritual concern and grief over how far we have departed from God or think of particular heinous sins of our day of abortion of people Coming together outside of God's purpose and will. The whole number of sins that are an expression that we too live in a day where people have departed from God. The revival that we pray and long for often comes as we experience something of Ezra's own Grief, of the dissatisfaction of our own spiritual condition, our own relationship with the Lord. Or as we look at the landscape of our day, how that people do not know spiritually their left hand from their right hand. Our people are living for themselves and their own glory. So we find here the condition of the nation. And I I need to press on just because we only have a few more minutes to the second part of the passage, and that's the confession of the prophet, the prophet Ezra in verses five through 15. And we find in this section the outpouring of his heart to a gracious God what does he do? Not only does he tear his garment and pull his beard, he falls on his knees. He spreads out his hands to the Lord. An expression of his complete dependence, that God is the one who must intervene, that what is needed is for God to come down and be among them. And it is interesting here that he does so as we read in verse 5 at the time of the evening sacrifice would have been maybe 2:30 to 3:30 time frame in the afternoon. It was a time at which some of the people of God would meet, would meet at the temple and pray. And certainly the Lord Jesus our very Lamb of God who's taken away our sin because of his righteous life, that Jesus is the only basis upon which we can plead our prayers with the Lord and have the certain assurance that our sins are pardoned, that we are cleansed, that he can make us new even though we we know him He can change us. He can transform us to be more and more conformed to his image. And I see in this passage that there are three aspects of pardoning prayer of the prophet. The first, the first is identification. The prophet confesses the sins of the nation. But he doesn't do it abstractly. He's not doing it pointing the finger at them. He expresses the sins as the nation, as his very own sins. Let me read in verses six and seven. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. The key to effective prayer is this aspect of identification, of not being detached not being distant from the sins that are around us, but to take them to the Lord, acknowledging that we are numbered among those who do not follow the Lord as we should. Isn't it a great encouragement to pray knowing that Jesus is praying for us when we are tempted, when we are discouraged, when we might feel like throwing in the towel to know that he is praying for us. We can go to him in prayer and praying with tenderness. I know God can have a righteous displeasure against sin and sometimes our prayers can be marked by a a cold judgment of those Who have departed from the Lord. And indeed, the Lord will judge and deal. We all will appear before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus. But our prayers are to be marked by a tenderness like the prophets here, as he uses the first person plural our iniquities, our heads, our guilt. The second, the first is identification. The second is that of confession. Ezra sees the sin of the people like a great flood. A flood that has spread across the whole land and has brought devastation and chaos and that it is rising. We're up to our heads in it, essentially, he says. And it's so great, it's reaching to heaven. And the sin that he sees is not only great, but in verse seven, he refers to it being persistent. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. That they're repeating the sins of their forefathers, Sin is like a hereditary disease that can be passed from one generation to another. As a child imitates and copies his parents or his grandparents, there could be an endless cycle without the intervention of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, and of his grace. Sin is persistent. We also see here that spin, sin is something that is widespread. In verse 7, he talks about the extent that it's all classes of men, kings, priests, everyone, those of the sword. Uh, it, it indeed is something that is characteristic of everyone. And this is how he begins the whole chapter in verses one and two. How that all have been affected by sin, that we all need God. He next speaks that in sin, he confesses that they are defying God. In verses 10 to 12, We have forsaken your commandments. They willfully disobeyed God. Their sin is a rebellion against the Lord. I know in my own life, when I know what's right and I refuse to do it, there are few things that are more sorrowful and sad You know, the the design of this chapter is not to browbeat us. He's honest, exposing, confessing, acknowledging sin. But it is the grace of God that is able to change us. This is the very thing that we need. Our sin deserves punishment. He underscores that in verses 14 and 15. You know, God had every right to wash his hands of them. And the same could be said of us. Who of us have clean hands and a pure heart? Now we all fall short of his righteous glory. But it's because of the Lord's mercy. He gets at this in this final point that of gratitude. He's thankful for God's mercy which is though God had every right to be angry with them he set them in a firm place. And this word for firm place is reference to a tent peg a tent peg that was driven in and would provide stability and safety. It could be a tent peg for a nomad to place his tent and be safe and secure. Or the word could be that of a peg that could be used for attaching to a wall and hanging pots and pans that they might be secure on that peg. You may remember this image might also be the tabernacle itself that had pegs, tent pegs, golden pegs that gave security to the tabernacle. The Lord is the protection, protector of his people He promises to be a wall of protection for them. So for each of us who look to his son, our savior, Jesus Christ, as Ezra confesses the sins of his people and his own sins, as he identifies with them in their sin, confessing that sin and seeking to forsake it. There is great hope that the Lord would relent from punishing, that the Lord might prove continually gracious, that he might continue to sustain the remnant of his people. The grace of God indeed is greater than our sin. We need to come to grips with the marvel and the greatness of His holy and righteous grace, the grace that spurs us on to repentance. I know this is quite a passage, and thinking and hearing about this can be quite heavy upon us. But the Lord does want us to come to Him, acknowledging our need of Him and praising Him for His mercy. Um, Let's just take a few moments as we transition to prayer. Let's go to the Lord, praising Him for His mercy perhaps acknowledging our need of him, confession of the sin of our land, crying out for his power and his presence to be at work among us. And let's do this as a united people, as a family of faith together. So let's seek our loving, kind, and gracious God together in prayer as we pray one after another. Let us pray.